back to Mechanical Freak from Seattle, that city of the future on the bleeding edge of neoliberal dystopia today. Uh, I'm Greg. I'm here with Munya and Brian, of course. Hey, guys. Hey. hey. And uh, we are also joined by friend of the show, returning guest, journalist, author, urbanist, and uh, <laughs> most importantly, proud Seattleite, Sean Scott. Hey, how's it going, guys? Good to be with you. Thanks for coming back, man. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for coming on. Urbanist. We'll see about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, urbanist, you got to listen to find out. <laughs> well, Sean, uh, of course, we asked you to come on and talk shit about bike paths so that you could get yelled at <laughs> instead of us for a while. Uh, but yeah, we're actually, tired of it, man. Like it's it's been <laughs> it's been brutal for us on Twitter. Like we we need we need another person to you know get into the get into the ring. Happy to be pulled into the into the fracas. <laughs> well, you had mentioned that you maybe you want to talk about something a little more interesting uh, than that, which then, was uh, then like posting discourse. Yeah, yeah, the, <laughs> the bullshit on Twitter, uh, which was the work of Mike Davis, who we lost in October. And just for those not familiar, Mike was an SDS member and activist in the late 1960s, turned truck driver and apparent stake deliverer to the Chargers football organization, <laughs> uh, who at one point was denied a coveted trucking route. And so he did the thing that you do, which is he then became a scholar and started working in academia, just the natural progression. Uh, since then, he's written formative books on a startling wide, startlingly wide variety of topics, uh, from his breakdown of the pathologies at the heart of the American labor movement and prisoners of the American dream to his dissection of the confluence of environmental disaster and British colonialism in 19th century India and late Victorian Holocaust to his sweeping study of modern global urban history and planet of slums, all of which, by the way, everybody should read. Just get on mm. your verso, whoever's printing them right now, buy them, read them. Uh, Mike was a prolific writer and speaker. Uh, he was one of the few actually existing public intellectuals on the left, an increasingly endangered species, and Mike's passing is a huge loss for all of us. Yet, if I could, you know, assume, uh, you know, based off of, you know, Mike's writing and interviews he's had and stuff, I think that Mike would uh, repeat the immortal words of Joe Hill in his death, don't mourn, organize. But I just wanted to get that out. Mike Davis is a big part of my life um, and my sort of movement on the left. And that being said, I mean, Sean, you know, maybe you have yeah, can let us know a little bit about like what uh, how Mike Davis maybe has impacted you. Yeah, well, I think um, and that, that was such a great um, tribute, a really, I think, beautiful introduction to this conversation. I think that uh, the last two or three years people have seen um so much lost people who've been, you know, enduring so much grieving um, it, that seeing somebody that actually poured a lot of their life and a lot of their waking moments into um, theorizing, writing about organizing for um, competitive left movements, I think is, is super inspiring just on that level. Um, I think that, you know, the thing that I think about mostly with Mike Davis is the fact that, you know, in 2007, I think it was the, the UN, um, estimated that that was the first year that more people lived in globally, that is lived in cities than lived in uh, rural areas. Um, so that when you, when you 
consider sort of rhythms of, of mass urbanization, what's going on with the climate crisis, the, the mass migrations that that's going to inspire to big cities. The, the future of cities is really the, the future of humanity in a lot of ways. And um, I think when you, you read City of Quartz, we were talking about this over text a little bit earlier, Munya and I, like, I think it would be one thing if, you know, Mike Davis was a writer who compiled a lot of research about the rise of security forces, um, you know, compiled a lot of really interesting research about um, sort of, uh, you know, what he called the the homegrown revolution of, of really retrenched homeowners associations in Los Angeles. Um, somebody that had really interesting research that he did about, um, you know, sort of the role that the, the, the U.S. managerial state had in propping up American middle classes through huge entitlement programs. Outlaying all of that would be interesting on a research level, but the fact that on top of that, he was also, I think, um, like an incredible prose stylist as well, and had lines that kind of stuck to your ribs when you read them in a very haunting way of um, sort of reciting this, his, this history that a lot of people may or may not be familiar with, um, I think just makes the impact that much more visceral in a lot of ways. So I think it's, it's, it's inspiration on a lot of levels from um, the, the, the organizing side of it and somebody who was actually involved in um, Teamster struggles, worker unrest in, in Los Angeles, but also the part of it where he cared enough about, about the history that he was writing about it to make it relatable to other people so that um, books like City of Quartz um, and others, you know, survive him as people, I think, continue to reflect on what his legacy was and um, mourn him in the best way that I think you, you possibly could, which is to read him. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. His, his work's very accessible. Like, but like you say, like, like he's a poetic writer, like, um, and very, and concise, you know, like mm-hmm. packs a lot in to a paragraph, like a, a lot of information and analysis in, in these books that like you can, uh, but you turn, you know, you're turning the page, uh, right. Yeah. Just, just a pleasure to read. It makes me kind of think about, I mean, this is the, I think he, he belongs to a, a really long tradition of, of socialist writers, obviously, but it would be like if um, you had a writer like like Karl Marx, if maybe he was like a 20% of a better writer. I mean, Engels was somebody <laughs> who wrote a lot about sort of the sociological impact of, of capital, This this as it was then, a, you know, something that people are doing a lot of new theorizing about in, in the 19th century. How did that impact people sociologically in factories, in the way that they organize their lives um, as workers? Um, so that Engels was a lot more of a relatable writer than Marx was. I think that what Mike Davis gives you sort of an insight into is is what did what would Marx have looked like if if he actually cared to be a little bit more relatable in, <laughs> in some of his essays. Um, so yeah, yeah. When uh, Mike Davis is writing about like yarn and uh, cotton, you're just going to get you're going to be wrapped. It will not right. be like the first mm-hmm. two chapters of Capital. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, bro, I know how to construct a coat now, my guy. I don't need, like, the blueprint. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, I mean, a great place to start with Mike Davis is perhaps his most famous uh, book and maybe infamous after the L.A. riots, uh, his 1990 book, City of Quartz, which is a deep dive into the urban history of Los Angeles, which is where Mike grew up and uh, the city that he ultimately would spend uh, most of his life in. And I think... Mike would call it both the most American city and uh, in a lot of ways, the most typical city, like in Planet of the Slums, he talks about how L.A. is more, uh, you know, 
reflects more of the future of urban development than a place mm-hmm. like New York City, you know. Um, and in City of Quartz, you know, he he talks a lot about how urban geography doesn't just happen. It's created. And mm-hmm. he, you know, you mentioned, Sean, the sort of uh, his discussion of the insidious influence of, of homeowners associations and things like that. Uh, Mike, he sort of divides the development of the city of L.A. into two periods of insidious homeowner activism. Uh, the One, the 40 years between 1920 and 1960, when homeowners associations were overwhelmingly concerned with the establishment of what he called a bourgeois utopia. And then the subsequent period when homeowners associations concerned themselves with defense of the suburban dream against unwanted development as well as against unwanted persons. And, you know, you guys guessed it. We're going to talk L.A., baby. L.A. urban development today. And Sean, uh, maybe we should just put first things first and describe maybe what the bourgeois utopia of the American suburbs is and how it came to be. Yeah, I think that... um one of the things that I enjoy most about City of, of Quartz as a book is that um, though it's it's an incredibly specific history about Los Angeles in particular, you can also generalize from, from how specific it is so that the story of L.A. that I think uh, Davis weaves is in a lot of ways the story of Seattle. It's the story of Portland, New York, Chicago, et cetera. Um, I think he says somewhere in the introduction that his goal was to sort of map the ways in which sort of forces of globalization impact and shape Los Angeles on a micro level. Um, and you can't, you know, I think that that's, that's a, a goal that a lot of people would do well to, you know, or urban theorists in particular to keep front of mind. Um, as far as the, the construction of the bourgeois utopia, right. You're talking about the period from after world war one until um, around uh, the Vietnam war, where you had huge federal entitlement programs, welfare programs, really, um, programs like the GI Bill that, you know, assisted returning veterans, um, a more or less uh, committed federal um, or federal commitment to uh, universal employment of free, if not very, very cheap education is seen in the the, um, the college system of, of, of Davis's California. Um, so that, you know, the closest the United States really came, I think, to um, democratic socialism was this four or five decade period of social democracy um, that already contained within it the seeds of the exclusion that I think um, on the other end of it, Mike Davis is is also centrally concerned with, concerned with as well, right? The fact that um, returning black GIs, for example, couldn't access the same uh, GI Bill benefits. Uh, black folks, folks of color in general, uh, are living in the middle of this constructed utopia that you described. Um, in segregated cities, segregated neighborhoods that were prone to over-policing. Um, so that by the time you get to about the, the middle 1960s and people are describing the urban crisis, what that really is, is um, the problem with the color line sort of writ large in um, protests, civil rights demonstrations that were happening, not just in the Jim Crow South, but in northern cities that were just as segregated um, as anywhere else in the country. So um, the, the utopia, I think, already has had within it sort of the, the seeds of its own demise. If post-war progressives, both after um, World War One and after World War II, had been committed to um, building actually inclusive structures, maybe American history would have played out a lot differently. But that wasn't the case. Segregation was 
the point gated communities in Los Angeles and beyond was the point um, racially exclusive entitled entitlement programs. That was the point uh, banning um, black domestic workers from being able to organize in the South. That was the point. Um, and so I think that, the you know, in city of courts, what you're really seeing is sort of the demise of an, of an American dream that was already supposed to be and intended to be a nightmare for people of color in specific. Um, you, you think a lot about the chickens coming home to roost phrase that Malcolm X used after Kennedy got killed. And um, I think it's, it's really, really reminiscent of how um, sort of urban history played out in the course of the 20th century. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that the idea of the suburban utopia, right, of being just basically, basically racially and economically homogenous, which wasn't by accident, you know, um, you know, early on in the 20s and 30s, it's been enforced by racial covenants that don't become illegal until the late 1940s, but then gets enforced by the federal government itself through uh, the Homeowners Loan Corporation or Hulk through their redlining practices, where they literally determine you know, how good a neighborhood is, which determines whether a bank will actually loan to you to purchase a house in that neighborhood uh, based off of like things like do minorities live there? Specifically, do black people live there? Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Exactly. Of course, gets you redlined and outside the good graces of the banks. Right. Um, And you see, I think the the summary that the Davis gives in city of courts of the the neighborhood of Fontana, I think is, is really, really instructive and, in that regard in specific. Um, and I, and I, I think that, um, you know, the, the conversations I think about institutional racism happen cyclically people, um, over the generations find different entry points into talking about it. But, and when you zoom out and I think you look at the macro scale, um, you see a lot of these, these themes as being pretty, pretty recurring as far as the way that institutional racism segregation, um, is, is mapped onto, onto urban terrain. So that's something I think that's actually not, not as much, recognized in in davis's work as um as it ought to be yeah yeah and i mean choosing la as your launching point is also an interesting choice as well i mean it's a it's a city in the west right it has all the you know uh sort of accoutrement that goes with that i mean places like rolling oaks in los angeles or la Hambra, which you know mike davis jokingly refers to as horse communities but they literally are horse communities mm-hmm. and that wasn't by accident. The fifties, I mean, it's partially to like, you know, uh, it's partially land restriction to keep people from moving in. But the other part of it was that they were like, we're embracing the Western tradition of the rain. I mean, that's how they'd advertise it. Like we're out here on horses, just like the pioneers and stuff. But at the same time, Los Angeles is like the most South city of the West in the sense that always been extremely anti-union. Uh, extremely segregated and, you know, long histories of racism, particularly with regards to its police department who, you know, I don't, you know, when you say LAPD, you know, I think people, the image in people's head is, is clear, you know, what that sort of means. Um, And I think it's interesting that Davis chooses that as the sort of jumping off point to look at American cities, because in some other cities in the North, there was this sort of option very briefly in the late 30s, early 40s of public housing. <laughs> you know, uh, most famously in St. Louis, they built the giant Pruitt Igo projects. But in Chicago, New York City, Detroit, large housing projects were built of dense urban housing that was going to be heavily federally subsidized. Uh, it was not always intended just for the black population. Poor whites lived in various elements of it themselves. Um, but all the cities 
give up on that. There's a choice. <laughs> Tense, urban, mm-hmm. publicly subsidized living or the suburbs. <laughs> and Yeah, I would yeah. I would almost suggest actually that what you described there are two different modes of public housing. I mean, you can't have mm. expansive suburbs without having large amounts of, of federal investment. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, suburban and suburban-esque neighborhoods are the horizontal equivalent of the kinds of vertical public housing towers that you're used to and seeing big, um, you know, in, in big Northern cities. Um, so that, you know, it, a lot of this comes down to, I think, just adjusting ide- our ideas about what we think of as, as worthy public subsidies and ones that are not worthy. It, it wasn't only that, that I think a lot of the, the vertical uh, housing projects that you talk about were um, used by white folks. A lot of them were intended for them and did not become blighted areas that uh, were subject to disinvestment until um, a lot of the, the white folks who lived in them achieved elevated class standing and then black and brown folks started to move in. That's the point when they started to become more subject to um, over-policing, disinvestment, um, and that moral panic started to arise around them. Um, but if we were going to have a frank conversation, I think about um, public housing and, and what it looks like, you, you'd have to include also the, just the huge amounts of, I mean, mansion subsidies um, are still a thing. I mean, like like literal tax oh, yeah. deferments that you get for having an extremely big house. That's a, a form of federal subsidy as well. So um, that's, a, yeah, something to keep in mind. When you're trying to grow a like suburban yeomanry uh you it's i guess they knew it was important to make sure they didn't know it was organized so that no one would really directly understand that they were getting away with something which is exactly what when you're giving anything to poor people it it has to be extremely clear that they're getting away with something, they're getting <laughs> something for free. So there's a, just an element of uh, seediness and guilt uh, surrounding that that system. That uh, yeah, w- and as opposed to the suburbs, which is all mystified into you know I've I've risen myself to uh, the play the position of you know ranch home with a yard i'm a little lord out here of my own little uh dukedom and and uh the the hand of the the massive piles of money coming down from the federal government is uh obscured it's like damn i have this offer that i can't refuse that's seemingly backed by um a federal government uh <laughs> you know uh, I, I i guess i guess um i guess this is just uh my on my merit and uh <laughs> I just worked hard for this, right? Like, because yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, the suburbs in a real way, like me, um, you know, in one of the ending the myth episodes, we talk about, um, you know, the creation of the suburbs and how I, on a, on a real level that the, the suburbs would not exist without um, federal planning and federal subsidies for the mortgages that, you know, basically created an offer that was too good to refuse for every single white middle-class you know, person. Right. right. It, that's that's really what instigated white flight. And sure, there was, um, you know, racial motivations as well. But I think what also gets kind of lost is just the actual, you know, objective truth that, you know, this was a sweetened uh, deal that a lot of people got that, you know, if they were. And that's why it's such a scandal that I think not everyone got it was because it was a very, very big program uh, for a lot of people in America to actually 
get guaranteed um, home, right? And that then created these, uh, it was, it's essentially like neo uh, segregation in that way. So, you know, with that homogeneity of uh, race, class, and home values in City of Quartz, um, you know, Davis is saying that there's not even an implied solidarity, uh, class solidarity between everyone in these communities because their home values are basically the same, right? And so there's there's even um, there's even a level of community in the sense of we are here because our home values are the same and we need to protect these home values at all costs, right? Which then comes to the HOA, um, like the Home Owners Association, which Davis says is basically like the most like aggressive uh, middle-class movement and almost like in the 20th century American history, um, which I thought was a really interesting point that he made, right? Because when you, and this is, this is something that's created by choice, right? And this is kind of a result of that uh, system of intentional segregation, a way out from, um, you know, integrated dense cities into these like predominantly white, uh, middle-class to upper middle-class suburbs, which gives white identity, um, something that's at the forefront, but also a specific and explicit class identity too, right. uh, which uh, they could actually then organize around, which I thought was like a very interesting point in the yeah. book. Yeah, it's the, you know, using policy to create some kind of class formation. And the way, you know, you describe it, I mean, it's like, even if, even if to the degree, like some of these people, like were aware of the like actual like mortgage subsidies they were getting, you know, when you have this whole narrative of class where, you know, you're there cause you deserve this, like everyone else you're that's really just part of your paycheck to you. Probably it's like, yeah, well I've done, I've done all this. I am this person. So yeah, the government does need to take care of me a little. And that all maybe only reinforces that. Well, at the same time, you're not really seeing even bigger subsidies is all the fucking infrastructure, the highways and the roads yeah. and the fucking yeah. pipes and copper wire that's <laughs> uh, costs way more to build in the suburbs in the city. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think it's just worth mentioning real quick that with the suburbs, I mean, when you talk about it's creating this sort of political class and that's 100% not by accident, you know, uh, uh, we tell the story in ending the myth. It's just a funny story about how in, LA, I think it was in 45, they ran a contest where you could win a house in this new San Fernando Valley suburb, right? The perfect suburban house with all the modern appliances. All you had to do was write an essay, a short essay, why it's better to live under capitalism than communism. And then they took those essays and they dropped them over Italy during uh, the 48 elections to try and convince people. They're like, these are real Americans speaking out. Like, this is why you have to choose capitalism. But, you know, the people who built the suburbs were very clear, like, this is an anti-communist program. Right. Like, you know, we'll, if we build the suburbs, people are going to become invested in America, not as workers, but as little lords and barons, essentially, little capitalists. <laughs> little fiefdoms that they can, you know, control, right? And I think that this is capital's exact answer to the New Deal and the genuine, you know, rise of the communist parties in America too. And the actual success that labor organizing did bring as well. So, you know, um, suburbs are like capital's answer to that to basically say like, how can we, (laughs) how can we basically stop 
you know, people of all classes from organizing together and actually, you know, getting results. And it, like you said, Brian, now having like basically like a, um, a little mini Lord that, that they can like <laughs> be right. over their land. <laughs> yeah. Um, different, um, different book, but in um, Richard, Richard Rothstein's uh, The Color of Law, it's a similar point is made after the, the Russian Revolution in 1917, that this is where you start to see, um, you know, some of the, the first kinds of substantial federal investment and in not just paving suburbs, but hooking people on the idea that these were desirable places um, to want to live for, far as they were away potentially from defense firms or shipyards that people were working in after World War One. I. I mean, there had to be a real incentive to want to move way out further away from where you would work. And I think you guys are all right to identify that. I think the the the, the investment in, in whiteness and in the, the ideal of it um, had a lot to do with it. Um, and you, you add that. I mean, I think the, the focus that Davis has on Los Angeles as a Western city should be resonant for Seattle listeners as well. And, you know, the West is an oh, idea yeah. that I think is already has always promised um, the idea of a fresh start, the, the you know, promise, the, the promise of 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 class mobility um, the promise of freedom from sort of the conflicts that, that racked cities on the, on the East coast. Um, just move a little more is, West, bro. I yeah, promise you I just a little more West, a little just more a little more West. Yeah. It'll, it'll get there. All of that is very, very operative. And, um, yeah, I think the significance and choosing LA is the the subject and city of courts for sure. Yeah. And I mean, the, it allows homeowners to come together again in this sort of like, uh, class solidarity as homeowners, not as workers or anything like that. And it leads to the creation of organizations like homeowners associations who get very involved in this thing called zoning. Now, me and Munya are renters, so this is not uh, things that we're allowed to know. And Greg, of course, belongs to the sea where there are no laws. Uh, <laughs> Sean, uh, what the fuck is a homeowners association and what is zoning? Uh, go. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean... Homeowners associations, I think they they represent one version among many um, of organized capital in the United States. I mean, you have a business roundtable in the United States because CEOs got together and said um, in the, the middle of a, a wave of worker unrest in the middle 1960s, we have to have some way of actually coordinating how it is that we're going to crack down, sabotage a lot of these movements um, it doesn't work too dissimilarly, I think, at the, the level of urban space where homeowners associations really just represent congealed um, capital interest in the form of people trying to protect the investment of um, whiteness and landed property that you, you all were calling attention to a little bit earlier. Um, in the Seattle specific example, and a lot of the associations that are up here, many of these for many years actually just explicitly forbade renters from, from joining. Um, and of course, these arose in neighborhoods that were um, historically zoned in such a way so that um, it would be very, very difficult, if not impossible or illegal to place uh, apartment buildings that might potentially attract people of color, less desirable, quote unquote, populations, poor white people um, from moving into them. Um, Seattle and L.A. have the the parallel histories, I think, of of having really huge golf courses spring up around a lot of those neighborhoods. And when you go back and look at sort of the the newspaper entries for a neighborhood like or the newspaper advertisements, I should say, for a neighborhood like Broadmoor in Seattle, they're advertised as country clubs within the city. Um, in, in Los Angeles, 
Uh, in recent years, people have really called attention to what a waste of space and resources those courses represent. But in order to, I think, wage you know a real political battle against those, it's first looking at the roots of why they had to or why why they sprung up. Why do they exist in the first place? And a lot of it is is the the, the politics of exclusion. Um, it has to do with um, you know, trying to create the sorts of the sorts of enclaves you guys were talking about, where people felt incentivized from moving away from other populations they probably had more in common with than with the elites who were selling them um, on on this. This is a, a worthwhile thing to do. And I mean, yeah, I mean, to your point, I, I can't remember if it was the Broad, uh, Broadmoor Golf Course or if it was one just south of that. Even built with like prison labor, <laughs> yet you know, uh, totally exclusive. Uh, those prisoners, when they got out, of course, could not visit the golf course that they built. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, so in the '60s, there's this transition period that that Davis kind of recognizes, where it goes from like building the sort of uh, gated community to guarding the gated community, and I, I think it's you know his picking the middle sixties as the transition. Uh, I, I think there's, there's something to that. Uh, Sean, what caused this transition uh, from building to defending, right? From expanding to fighting. Well, I think the, the, the middle sixties is when it started to become apparent to many who had benefited from the social order that was constructed Um beginning after World War I, but in increasingly after World War II, um, that for many different reasons, this social order was not going to be sustainable, right? I mean, it was, in a lot of ways, I think the middle 60s were represented kind of a crisis of capital in that respect, that um, there were only so many, um, there were only so many open lots to expand, expand into. There were only um, so much time before um, populations that were excluded from um, this this burgeoning post-war dream we're going to get, um, you know, there's only going to be so much, so much long before they would take it. Um, and I think that the, um, take the exclusion that is, and I think that what you started to see in the middle 60s with the, the civil rights movements, movements for um, indigenous sovereignty, um, you know, women's, women's rights movements as well, and, and populations that were consigned to just performing endless domestic and wageless uh, domestic labor, um, LGBTQ populations that were, you know, explicitly excluded as well. Um, it, it was a it was a turning point period because all the groups that had been excluded from, I think, this 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 post war war order, um, had finally risen up and said, "This this does things don't have to be this way." Um, and so, I think that in in a lot of ways, the the post war utopia, you know, as you you had called it. It was built on the ideal of exclusion in, in inherently. Um, and you had a lot of people that were left out and said things do not have to be this way. So I think that that's where you get the turn from um, the constructing and the building, the expansion to um, having to defend or this, the feeling of having to defend. Or as Davis cites it in the, the words of these movements, the single issue they were championing, uh, slow growth, which I think is funny <laughs> because I guess as uh, middle class, like upwardly mobile uh, American dreamers, like you can't you can't say no growth. You couldn't just say, no, 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 no. We're done. The, the suburbs can't grow anymore. Our town can't 
has to stay how it is forever. Like that was off the that's what they want, right? That was that's mm-hmm. on the table. They just have to say, no, 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 no. Let's just pump the brakes. Let's go a little slower here. I yeah, find and, it funny. And certainly the fact that a lot of the uh the homegrown home homeowners association um associations also were very, very active in fighting school integration in Los Angeles as well does not speak well to um you know the 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 motives of, of a lot of those movements with it, which I think as they do now, tend to try to present themselves in very egalitarian terms. We're actually opposing changing, you know, zoning laws in big cities because we're afraid of displacement or um, we don't think that this housing should go in the central areas. The refrain often goes in Seattle, where the the reality is, is that a lot of the same people that were involved in um, the fights to uphold um, restrictive zoning also opposed neighborhood integration and, as it turned out, school um, integration as well. And again, those are parallel histories between between Seattle and, and Los Angeles um, as, as well. Yeah, the white suburbs everywhere are the bulwark, the, the army that rose up against integration and eventually stalled it out. And again, maybe it's obvious, but like, you know, worth pointing out again, it's not a coincidence. Like if we're saying... Like, oh, it's it's not it's not an accident that someone wanted to create like a uh, proto fascist army of little like lords out mowing their lawns. Like, why do you want to do that? Uh, mm-hmm. And so you have people to rise up and force uh, the class relationships here and including segregation and uh, racism. Right. And, and crucially, like organizing against uh, things that are happening that are not necessarily only within their community, right? Like these are like integrations in like, you know, the inner city, right? Then in, in like, you know, dense neighborhoods, it's, uh, you know, I think the very uh, simple thing is too, is that uh, when you're actually living in it, it's kind of harder to, you know, propagandize and have uh, mobilize people against something when you're actually, you know, have, you know, a vested stake in it or are living it and seeing it with your own eyes, right? Uh, when you kind of take that out of the suburb and just have a homogenous, like, um, you know, uh, white community there and then just saying, oh, hey, this thing is happening, right? And we still see this today, right? Where uh, the much of the reactionary base is still, you know, in, you know, the white suburbs. Um is that like you can then like have this kind of like proto-fascist kind of radicalized group of people who um, are easier to influence, right? Because you're actually actually taking them away from the community that is now is now you're kind of telling them that it's like, it's bad, right. Or things are yeah. you know happening and mm-hmm. it's not good. Right. And that's like, a, you're becoming much more amenable to those things, right. When you get removed um, so and social bonds uh, break, uh, a big theme in ending the myth is the breakage of social bonds, right? And that happens both through, you know, violence and through, you know, more soft power and economic means. And I think that this really is one of them. And, and Davis kind of does a good job of see, showing that turn from, you know, the turn of like growth to basically a, like a frontier closure of sorts where they're now completely just like, you know, bordering it up, right? No right. more. It's right. like the architecture underlying so much of our politics, too. I mean, like, it's the fucking people out in the suburbs who are convinced that all American cities burned down in 2020. And still believe and still it. believe it to this day because they haven't seen the American city in years and they're yeah. not planning to go find out for themselves. And the same class of people out there who yeah had left 
you know, themselves or a generation earlier had left the cities and left being in any proximity to black people in America uh, were then, uh, yeah, became really agitated against the idea of of busing, of sending their uh, white suburban children uh, into schools in the city, you know, a place they hadn't been with people they (laughs) didn't know, you know? Yeah, Yeah, right. Well, and I think the issue of school desegregations, you know, of particular importance. I mean, Brown versus the Board of Education happens in uh, the middle 50s, like 54. But the the massive resistance in the South basically prevents anything from happening. I mean, they essentially say, hey, schools should be desegregated with all deliberate speed, famously, uh, which was interpreted by everybody hearing it as when we get around to it, which will, of course, be never. And uh, it really takes uh, the Johnson administration in the middle 60s to kind of start forcing the hand of desegregating some of these schools. And, you know, in American history, we kind of, you know, when we hear that in school, we imagine that as all being in the South, right? This is an Alabama problem. This is a Georgia problem. Uh, But L.A. had some of the most segregated school districts in the country at the time. Uh, There's actually a massive student walkout in 1968. Uh, the largest, I think, high school student walkout that's ever happened in the United States, uh, attacked by police, you know, all this kind of stuff. Uh, but it scared the shit out of the people in the suburbs. <laughs> you know, they fucking lost their minds because the Suwago is largely Chicano, is largely black. And they're like, fuck, they're, you know, uh, everything we're hearing, you know, on TV about the, the you know, urban crisis is, is coming true. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it, it didn't uh, slow down, like seeing the reaction that having segregated schools uh, got from the people on the sort of stick end of it didn't convince the people in the suburbs. They didn't all of a sudden realize, oh, maybe this is a moral wrong to do this. Maybe we should change. <laughs> Their reaction was, oh, we should move back, move the front back a little bit and reinforce. Mm-hmm. And uh, what you have is the removal. And send tanks over the line into <laughs> yeah. the city. <laughs> Yeah, and so you have the removal of white students from public schools, the sort of moving to further out suburbs, and also the introduction of police into schools in L.A. in 1969. And it's, you know, I, you know, I, I think that that uh, something about the the confluence of moral panics around children, around race and around uh, increasing fears of the urban environment just came together to create the worst human beings that this country may have ever produced. (laughs) Thus far, at least. (laughs) Well, you need someone to be the cops you're going to send into the city. Again, another reason why you have to create this white suburban yeomanry. Mm -hmm. You need... Because they need to recruit a standing army in the city. Uh, Yeah. yeah. But, you know, maybe to bring it back a little bit to what Davis was sort of talking about, I mean, you you brought this up, Greg, and and I think it's worth maybe just explaining this a little bit which is the idea of the slow growth movement which you know some of our uh environmentalist friends out there listen to me like yeah dude we gotta we gotta cut that growth down. <laughs> oh my god, god. The, guys, the shit where he's talking about the and the use of like environmental language and in these movements that of all the things that like felt extremely familiar both in seattle and just like over the course of my lifetime that one that one stings like i mean that that's fucking sarah nelson 
Like that is exactly who she is. Well, Sean, maybe you could uh, enlighten us a little bit on the slow growth movement. Yeah, I think one of the, the ways to think about um, the slow growth politics of the 70s and then also the, the introduction of you know, politics of mass incarceration, such as the kind we had, we had never really seen in the 80s, was it's just part of the long uh, reaction or backlash to the, to the civil rights movement. Um, and we have seen, I think, how swiftly the pendulum can swing, um, certainly in recent years from um, periods of great progress, a lot of uh, promise of, of progress anyway. Um, the summer of 2020 in Seattle is, was one example um, among dozens and dozens that you can find in U.S. history where very quickly um, reform movement, movements breed a reaction that um, in a lot of ways intensifies and doubles down on um, a lot of the systems that were being protested against in the first place so that um, you can come out of um, a middle 1960s where people were calling attention to um, disparities in policing, um, the same sorts of unfortunate headlines that we had seen of of, of unarmed, um, innocent, slain um, black folks. Um, and within another 10 or 15 year period, um, you already have a war on drugs. You already have a Richard Nixon who's running on the explicit um, campaign platform of, of being tough on crime and law and law and order. Um, so that if if I think, you know, re, 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 reform movements and radical movements don't actually make the absolute most of the opportunities that they get, they're put in front of them, you can actually really quickly find yourself in a period where I think the, the retrenchment um, is worse than the thing that was there in the first place. Um, and I think that the, um, you know, the, the politics of, of housing segregation are a real example of this as well, where, um, you know, I, you were talking about it earlier. I think the response that you have to, um, you know, the outcry against segregated communities is to actually triple and quadruple down on um, segregation and add to it uh, modern policing. Yeah. And um, this this whole I mean, the concept of slow growth itself it has this interesting i mean greg you mentioned this sort of like environmental appeal that it has but it also has this weird antisocial appeal of a sort of we got ours close the gates on everyone else but yeah as you say Sean, i, I think find another patch of the west somewhere else asshole yeah and i think as you say Sean, i mean that just plays into the segregationist instincts of this country too i mean it's the classic uh yeah we get we we all get that black people have been fucked over but we got ours. Tough luck. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. But yeah, I wanted to. Uh, so he talks about the, there's this sort of counter movement that then rises in response to slow growth, slow growth created by homeowners associations and things like that. And he you know, talks about the statewide alliance of developers, builders, realtors and banks that you know are opposed to all sort of growth controls. And I just like this is just kind of funny from uh, uh, Davis here, this passage, he says, you know, in order to forestall growth controls, they have devised a brilliant, if staggeringly hypocritical strategy based on their decades of expertise in manipulating public opinion against environmentalism. Following the prescription laid down by mega developer Eli Broad in the early 1970s, they have become, quote, the friends of the people denouncing selfish elitist homeowners who prevent the trickle down of growth dividends and low income housing to the bottom of society. Uh Bleedy loudly about the plight of the proletariat and affordable housing, the pro-growth camp 
comprises developers opposed to inclusionary housing, builders opposed to unions, realtors opposed to housing integration, and landlords opposed to rent control. <laughs> hey, goddamn, if that still doesn't exist, too. <laughs> mm. Could have been written, like, this year, really. <laughs> and I, th- I think what Mike is sort of pointed out is that when it came to housing in L.A., you basically just have two forces fighting. You have the homo, the you know, upper middle class homeowners who got theirs fighting to maintain their property values or increase their property values versus the, you know, interests of like the fire sector who are trying to make a killing in real estate. And which, you know, which, uh, who do you want to choose in this fight? Is what it seems to come down to. Yeah. Are you a left NIMBY? Are we all, it's a, are these words spoken? <laughs> Yeah, like true that, left nimbies. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> yeah, Sean. Uh, so, do you have anything else like to add to this, like uh, with regard to, yeah, uh, the our left nimby sentiment and how it relates to uh, Davis's uh, description of these forces at play in LA? Yeah, I think you know you you. Page through City of Quartz, and I think um, the thing that one of the things that I think I find um, kind of most inspiring about it is is in in laying out um, all of the different ways where um, you have sort of the entrenched you know interests of of organized capital shaping what the city's politics in Los Angeles were like. Um, it does suggest a different way when you see it laid out that clearly, and I think the 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 fact that People have, um, in recent years, been um, talking as much about public housing, social housing, what it would actually look like to have the same scale of federal investment, municipal investment, and um, neighborhoods that are actually livable for all swaths of people. Um, it, it really has to come down to, I think, the politics of, of what's possible. Um, but in order to get to that stage, you have to actually be pretty clear-eyed about what it is that you're up against. Um and I, I don't think that there are a lot of writers, you know, who have laid that out a lot more clearly than than Mike Davis did for sure. Yeah. It's a really good read. Really recommend um, all listeners to check out the book. Um, again, Verso usually has sales. Um, if you know a friend who subscribes to Verso, they get 50% off. You could find this book. It's a, it's a good one to read. Um, and uh, yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, thanks for coming on, Sean. Um, do you have anything maybe you'd like to plug? Oh, I've been uh, keeping keeping a pretty low low profile of late, so nothing nothing just yet. But I, I have a feeling Ooh. that that's going to change pretty soon. Ooh, right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Watch. I really this appreciate space. you guys for having me on. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for, for coming, coming on, dude. Thanks for coming, Sean. This was awesome. Always good yeah. to talk to you. Absolutely. Catch you guys soon. Yeah. Peace. All right, guys. That's a great interview, right? Yeah, that rocked. That was oh, really good. Yeah, definitely uh, check out those Mike Davis books. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Mike Davis, when I say he's a prolific author, I mean, go check the man's bibliography. He is a prolific author. Whatever you were interested in, by the way, he's got a book about it. 
He wrote a book <laughs> in the late 90s about how there might be an avian flu uh, pandemic that could start in probably Asia, sweep the world and create all sorts of havoc because of neoliberal policies regarding health care and travel. Uh Oof, good thing that never came to pass. Yeah. Well, I'd love to see him vindicated. I mean, I hate to see <laughs> that. The, I hate to see that it happened, but I mean, goddamn, does it feel good to be right? He's pointing at the world calendar and he's like, four million dead. <laughs> yeah, he's like, guess who called that? <laughs> citations right here. He's just minding his own business in 2020. Just, just immersed in research for his last book. Not really paying attention and res- new uh, meager residual checks that haven't shown up in years start showing up with the title of that book on it. You know, like, what the fuck's <laughs> happening? What is this shit? I really hope yeah. that he learned he about did, like COVID. 400 fucking interviews uh, uh. in mid 2020. Uh, it, it would be great if you were more reclusive and not such an open person. And that yeah. was how he found out about COVID was through like residual checks showing up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, damn, I haven't seen this clearing company's uh, mail in a while. That's that's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, an amazing writer. Uh, City of Quartz is a must read. He also wrote another book about L.A. If you want a, a late 90s follow up uh, called Ecology of Fear, which is a series of essays about L.A., that are all excellent. Uh, there's one about uh, why people are so obsessed, Hollywood, etc., with destroying L.A., <laughs> which is uh, an interesting read. Uh, and then is burn, it, it Malibu, burn. Yeah. <laughs> and then Street Streets of Fire is about yeah. L.A. in the '60s. Yeah, that was yeah. more in the last. That was like 2019 or something. Is it yeah. set the? Is it? Isn't it like set the night on fire? Set the night, set the night on, on fire. fire. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's it, a massive book too. It's it's really just like I mean, man, if you're like like we said, yes, it's about L.A., but really, this is a story about America, and this is about the story of you know neoliberal global capitalism. You know, like this is this is like it's 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 very specific, and the the way that it's so specific, it just makes it so real and and relatable. Yeah, and I think you know Mike Davis is right in his uh you know sort of inference or whatever suggestion that la is not only the american city as opposed to new york or chicago or something it's the city of the future and there's a lot to be gained from learning about la uh, because your city is going to look more like it every day baby <laughs> it, it's it's yeah. all coming for you <laughs> you all know the forces I mean, there are coming right. for you <laughs> like there he he basically uh just did the premise of our of our show um just you know Seattle wasn't in its full development at the time uh so <laughs> you know we, we say from Seattle city of the future on neoliberal dystopia today because it's kind of it's kind of true right that's kind of where he's coming from with LA yeah yeah so check out Mike Davis uh, guys, real quick, uh, we have a few minutes here at the end. Uh, the Elon poll, uh, pro con, did you guys take it? And will Elon step down? Uh, I mean, hilariously, I've been following because you know when news cycles on stuff that is just so crazy and compounding, no matter what it is, right? Like when mm-hmm. COVID first happened, right? When the um. When January 6th was happening, there was like a million things, right? They, and a lot of things are forgotten because just news just moves so fast. And and I, I think Twitter right now is one of those stories that truly, if you, if you, 
when I tell people that when Elon first acquired Twitter, that the first thing he did was um, was seriously say that he's turning Twitter into OnlyFans. People thought I was like making a joke, but like that that was like his first policy point right off the gate after acquiring Twitter was like <laughs> <laughs> saying like yeah no we're gonna we're gonna make it OnlyFans now right um, it, you know so I've um, maintained this uh, note doc with my friends where. Every time there's something that happens, we like we paste it in the note doc. So we have this chronological timeline. And when I tell you, when I like go back and just see even like what was happening, like not even like, you know, when we did the episode when we thought Elon um, did bail out what he did um, and not acquire it. But even like after the acquisition went through to where we are now, um, just like the level of acceleration that um he's been on like down this just right wing like culture war like uh <laughs> just strong arm on like, the uh, shit. like Wayne Greenwald fast path <laughs> yeah no exactly i mean there's a reason why he got like Matt Tabivi to you know do his uh <laughs> to do his pr right like yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's been really uh fascinating in that way but it's also fascinating because i think this is like i can't think of another time in history really um or at least modern history in our lifetime where someone deliberately and unforcedly um blew up so much capital at once. <laughs> Not you know, only was like the $44 billion acquisition of Twitter happening, which certainly that valuation is a lot lower now. Um, but also the fact that after uh, Elon invested um, in Twitter and acquired it, um, Tesla stock has been down uh, by half, right? So it got cut in half. So that's $500 billion in market value completely gone off the bat. Plus, his own personal investment in Twitter completely gone in smoke too, right? Mm -hmm. So I think like, you know, this ties back to this poll. And if you guys didn't see it, because you might have like left Twitter or something. Um, <laughs> you know, I know people who have, uh, he posted this poll basically saying, um, should I resign? Yes or no? <laughs> and, and said, "I will abide by the results." Yeah, so it's just I a mean, fucking like. I, I think the the first thing it's like everything else. You can't like. This, he's a fundamentally like unserious child, you know. Like, <laughs> yep. like yeah. that's 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 the root of like everything about him. He's a an unserious child with a lot of money and it's like so what am i willie won't he who the fuck knows like what you know no there's no reason to take him seriously that he him saying he's gonna abide by this poll and the poll obviously coming out yes he should resign by a wide margin like there's no reason you should take him seriously like that or think he's gonna do that on the other hand there's every possible reason to think that he's He's very, very bored and done with this this little mm -hmm. game and ready to having done what he thought he wanted to do and ready to not be thinking about this on the daily anymore. Which is like, like just banning people he doesn't like. Because that's what yeah. like for the past week he's been doing, right? It's just yeah. been like just banning anyone, including well, the, his friends. The curious thing, if you think that this is just his uh, idiot way of trying to get out of this, uh, is that a lot of his major investors, including some that like to dismember people in hotels, have been urging him to leave Twitter. <laughs> to, yeah. to get, to get there, there are actual so. investors who are going on uh, 
Bloomberg TV going on CNBC and demanding yeah. that the Twitter board fire him. Right. Yeah, like, wow. they, I mean, it, it, the context of, of the poll. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, mean, I mean, it's just like un, it would that and that would be something that was unthinkable uh, a few years ago, because just like, you know, the weird nerds on Twitter, um, the investors kind of had this weird nerd to them, too, where they were like, well, I mean, this is the guy. This is like Steve Jobs reincarnated. Like he might be quirky, Incredible. but you know, he got a, yeah. he's going to, you know, take this to the moon. And, you know, frankly, it did go to the moon. Um, the stock did. So, yeah. well, you know, there are they're like, oh, well, on the moon. It. That's a similarity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there you go. Right. So, I mean, so it's really funny to see them now, uh, turn on him after yeah. we knew who, I mean, this is the same guy who, you know, tried to get the British cave diver um, to be marked as like a pedophile, right? On yeah. on Twitter, like it's not like this behavior is out of nowhere, right? So yeah. it's, it's 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 extremely funny that even the tolerance of like his biggest backers, his biggest fans, one of them being Paul Graham, who's a Silicon Valley billionaire, has a lot of clout, um, like the co-founder of Y Combinator. Um, he even lost Elon, even lost Paul Graham, where Paul Graham was like. <laughs> Uh, I can't like after he like Elon basically banned a string of journalists and just people who like just said something critically about him. Right. It wasn't even like uh, something that was loosely on terms of service at first was. And then he just expanded it to anyone who pissed him off. Right. Which I mean, if you own a social platform, like, I mean, <laughs> like it's it's almost like a Dadaist way of going about it. It's funny in a way, but like. At the same time, like, you know, Paul Graham, someone who was defending Elon when he uh, purchased Twitter, uh, was saying like, oh, you guys just don't understand his genius. Like, he's a really smart guy, obviously, blah, blah, blah. Um, so after he, Paul Graham basically said, hey, I'm taking a break from Twitter. This is too much. Uh, Elon suspended his account. <laughs> Which, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's perfect. Look, I mean, the they probably all thought he was a genius or said that publicly because he somewhat publicly and probably very privately for a long time has been saying that all these tech companies should like, should not be run the way they are in this, like the, the, these Silicon Valley pampered palaces with like all these like superfluous employees and all these like, you know, departments for making employees feel good and like you know everybody working uh from home with unlimited pay time off and like he came in that's what every that's that's what they all want to do that's this is the message they're looking for the guy to show them the way now yeah. he again happens to be a, a vulgar idiot child he's a trump-like figure in that way like he came in and you know did things a lot of people trump came in and did the thing capital cared about he like pass those fucking tax cuts you know and that but then you know ultimately you can't have him around like it's just it's unseemly yeah, you know yeah. like he's done it he he did the thing he's like look yes you can run any company like i run tesla like a shit show like where with everyone with morale there. in the toilet with mass layoffs right like yeah. and, and and it works and it, I, they really greg they really showed their hand when Elon did the mass layoffs, um, a chorus of people who mm -hmm. uh, you know are, are founders, investors, et cetera, all on Twitter were all like, um, 
this ushers in a new era. They were like, this proves that like you can actually run Twitter on like, you know, yes. on like maybe 10% of the staff that they did. Um, all tech companies are going to follow their lead. Like this is going to be like, you know, completely shake up. And this is what they've and been like right. wanting, right? And they're and, like, right and they go. will. And, yeah. and people laughed and it is like funny in a way when like, oh, uh, like, you know, he fires all these people and then immediately has to turn around and ask for a bunch of people to come back. And then they have to, like, call the security guy at home to get them let their cars out of the building because, like, everything's going haywire. Honestly, that's that's like some kind of like Machiavellian Bond villain villain <laughs> genius management consulting because, like, it's a process. It's political in a sense. And it's a and it's informational. How, what is, who are the people you actually need to run the company? Well, if you're a massive psycho, the way you find that out is you get rid of everyone and then you get <laughs> back just the people you need. Then you'll know. That's yeah. how you get the information, right? That's, that's how mm -hmm. you know. What does it take? Who do we actually have to pay? How can we run this, this on just like bare minimum, right? Mm -hmm. And, and the thing is, is that he, he really needs to, if like, if we're talking about someone, I mean, obviously with Elon, like he can just, you know, run at a loss forever because he has the reserves to cover the loans. But like, my gosh, I have never seen him tweet so much about the Federal Reserve um, than okay. one month after the deal closed, let's just say, yeah. when the first yeah. interest <laughs> payment hit. I, I mean, suddenly he wanted it to all, go back to QE times. Yeah. All of a sudden, he's like reading the, you know, the beast from Jekyll Island and like, you know, talking <laughs> about the child rituals or whatever. Yeah. Uh, OK. I mean, real quick straw poll. Yes or no. Does Elon quit? Eventually, well, I mean, what, like, no, yes, no, 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 not eventually. At some point. Uh, I'm talking about does he quit this week? Like in response no, to the, the polls. board forces him out eventually, okay. and he spins That's it not a yes in some no, way Greg. that he. All right, move. Yeah, yeah I'll, 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 no, no, I'll, that I'll, is my answer <laughs> because yes, he's all he's when he leaves, he's going to I get, say. I get that he this did essay it. is your answer, right, Munio. Yes or no? Does he leave uh, he, this week? He's there's no way that he does not leave because if you tweet that, that means you got fired. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. It's spin. Whether it happens now or a month from now, it's he's it's fired. All part of the spin. It's he's going away, and he's going to say that he he's like, yeah, I just, I quit. I was done. I guess and all the I, soy I SJ the dubs, uh, you know. Uh, all right, he's like going out. out the most Reddit way possible by like, oh, <laughs> I did a poll, and they told me, you know, I just abide by the poll. No, of course, yeah, he's out. He's gone. All right, well, I'll be the only one that can listen to instructions. No. All right, so I. <laughs> Ending the myth, everybody. <laughs> New episode of Ending the Myth is Let's go. out. Episode 19. Here we're mm. going to talk about... Loving it so far, guys. Yeah, we Thanks, talk about uh, how you know Cold War foreign policy affects civil rights. And you know what? You guys love hearing about urban development today. Uh, guess what's going to be on Sunday's episode? We're going to be talking about, you guessed it, the Prudigo project, the fight Oof. between... Uh, you know whether or not they should build uh, massive public housing or suburbanization. Tune in, check it out, and uh, yeah, ending the myth every Sunday in your mailbox. Yeah, and finally, we uh, want to thank our new patron, Cat, our new patron. Welcome to the fold. Let's join. go. Yeah, let's join the Discord. Uh, meet with the other freaks in there. Uh, me and Greg had a long conversation just the other day about how none of us understand how to work the Discord, but you don't have to be like us. You can, you can, you can uh, be a you normal know, person who knows how to operate. Patron, it. Um, DM'd me on Discord and was like, 
Um, Munya, can you please give me mod privileges? Because it's like actually painful uh, seeing you, your guys' like lack of, uh, you know, like <laughs> moderation on this. Not, not that like people are po- like modern content, but just like, you know, us like, you know, posting every time we, uh, uh, you know, release an episode or something or you know, stuff like that. It's like, please, I want to post every time you guys make an episode. Like I'll, I'll be, I'll do the work for you. We, we've, we've, we've basically like, um, disillusioned our <laughs> listeners so much and like told them to eat shit so much on discord that they actually want to just do the like labor uh, to like keep keep the keep the discord going right the stuff that we should we probably should be doing yeah um, i mean look we're bad at yeah. discord but that doesn't mean you have to be <laughs> that we we are giving you guys autonomy we're we're yeah. allowing you guys to create the uh, without our you know influence it's a problematic power dynamic if you think about it if we impose mm-hmm. what we want this community of mm-hmm. you know listeners mm-hmm. to be right i mean like I that preach. that's the real thing why, why the fuck would you want someone to come in and just like, you know, stir it up? Because then you'd be like, oh, now we have to kind of placate to like, you know, uh, what their thoughts are or what they think this should be, right? This is yours. This is yours. You pay for it and it's something that you get to keep, all right? Think about it that way. Yeah, you could literally go in there and talk shit about us. We would never know. So that's an invitation. <laughs> no, no, uh, see, the, but the thing is, is that, okay, to be fair, if for, for listeners actually doing, we are in the Discord and we do see stuff that is posted. I'm in there right now and I am about to reply to Weary Ian about his questions about buying and living on a boat. And you know what? The, let's see, the post here is from, that I'm replying to, it only goes back to November 29th. Okay, so... <laughs> you know <laughs> me greg is responding not even to, a month yeah greg's responding to the the november uh posts i'm responding to the october posts i mean just hoping to get to september sometime soon we're, we're going backwards we're going to respond to everybody retroactively uh so hey everybody be cool like cat five dollars a month gets you uh extra patreon episodes you can join our discord all that good stuff. You can find this a, a whole world of the freak that you've been missing out on. And uh, you don't have to. All right. So join our Patreon. All right. Also, hey, you know, buy it for a friend as a gift. I wouldn't know how that would work, you know, given how Patreon works. But uh, sure, you know, whatever. Also, uh, if your Patreon suddenly uh, stopped updating, um, Patreon has this thing where like you have to actually like update your uh, card information and like put a new um podcast app like two people reached out to me about this this week so i figured i might as well like say it here um like if you if you have like your patreon link in a podcast app and it's not updating uh go back to patreon see if it's uh the subscription still running and just get um a new link and post it in your podcast app um, we're still posting everything on patreon so yeah. um all right, well, we'll leave it there. Uh, once again, thanks to our guest, Sean Scott. Uh, I think, you know, it's snowing outside. The weather is frightful. It is? Oh, yeah, God, it is. My it's definitely snowing is... outside, Moon, yeah. Oh. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. <laughs> um, yikes, yikes, yikes. All right. Everybody pray for Moon, yeah. He's flying on a small private charter. They never crash. Don't worry. Okay, uh, about, fucking Moon is about to have the most whimsical goddamn planes, trains, and automobiles uh, Christmas that you've ever imagined. Okay, like he's uh, he's gonna land in fucking 
Chicago and just have the most <laughs> magical time meeting like interesting, nice people get like getting back to Seattle by like horse and buggy. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's going to hitch a ride with a mysterious bearded trucker who, as you know, he drops money off and drives off into the night. You just gonna hear him go, ho, 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 Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> it goes on. But yeah. Uh, you know, but it's, it's getting cold here in Seattle. We need to bundle up. Let's call it a night, guys. Mm, sounds good. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.